All right, so uh, as, as Joel said, we've, we've moved on to a, a new chapter in our, in our quest through First Corinthians. Um, so you might like to turn to that regard to First Corinthians chapter 3. Um, and I'll remind you uh, that that First Corinthians is in fact First Corinthians and not One Corinthians because it was not written to a single person in Corinth, but it is the first letter to the Corinthians. Um, so we, we've moved on to a new chapter, and concurrently, uh, Paul shifts his focus uh, definitely along the same theme, but there's a slight shift in focus from. Uh, in my opinion, the first two chapters speak predominantly, as I've said before, to uh, the world's wisdom and the world's ways versus God's wisdom and God's ways. Um, so that's predominantly what Paul's been uh, detailing in those first two chapters. Uh, now he moves into the, the third chapter, and with that as uh, right background that is set, he now moves on to correcting some specific sin which is in the church. Uh, of course, it makes sense that he follows uh, chapter 3 with, with what he's detailed in chapters 1 and 2 because that lays an appropriate foundation. And there's, I'll go through this a little bit more uh, later on in the message, but there's uh, one theme which is perhaps useful for us to, to keep in mind which will, uh, I think, help you to, to get even more out of the message if you forget this, don't worry, you'll still be able to get things out of the message. Um, but one thing that I think is good for us to keep in mind as we go through this, um, and it's this, that Christianity, uh, as with uh, anything else, is a definable thing. If we say well, we, can, we can define Christianity by what we have in God's word. Now, if you think of God's word as simply black and white on a page, and if you think of doctrine as simply a, a lifeless or man-made thing, I'm talking about true doctrine that's taken from God's word, then to say that, that Christianity can be defined by God's word and by the doctrine that comes therefrom will sound like a pretty lifeless kind of concept. But true Christianity is definable. And let me give an example like this. The, the Muslims follow Jesus to some extent. The Jehovah's Witnesses follow Jesus to some extent, as do the Mormons. But you will find in each of those different religions or cults, whatever you might like to call them, that the Jesus that they follow is different to the Jesus that is in God's word, which you have in front of you. And so, uh, just as the God of Christianity, Jesus, the, the second part of the Godhead, is definable by what's in his word, so Christianity, thinking slightly more broadly, is definable by what's in this word. Now, how does that relate to what's in chapter 3? Well, predominantly the sins that, that Paul confronts are due to spiritual immaturity. And I'm going to propose to you uh, throughout the message that the antidote to spiritual immaturity is God's people being centred around God's word. In fact, that's largely a quotation of the title of the message. God's people 
centered around God's word, centered around the doctrine that is found therein, will be the cure to spiritual immaturity. And once again, if you think of God's word as simply black and white on a page, or if you think of doctrine as something which is uh, man-made or dry or whatever else, then you're going to miss the full uh, depth of a comment like that. So you're, you're in First Corinthians, I'm hoping. Um, we're going to read, just by way of introduction, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, through to chapter 3, verse 9. Then we'll pray. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And our focus text today is uh, verses 1 to 4 of this chapter. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we gather here today under your word. We gather here to hear it read. We gather here to pray together. We gather here to, to sing songs in line with your word, to worship you with them. And we gather here, Lord, to, to hear the preaching of the word. But similar to what I said about, um, about the black and white on the page in front of us and the, uh, the doctrine that comes from it, may the hearing uh, and the participating in all of these things not be dry and lifeless. May it not be something that we do out of religiosity on a Sunday. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, may it be full of life. May it be something which... Uh, pierces our heart, maybe which just one or two things we remember and by your spirit we put into place. I pray that you would uh, remove me out of the equation, Lord, and that simply you would speak to your people by your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I should mention also, especially for the benefit of uh, the visitors here, that uh, if, you, uh, if you don't dig the way that I preach, don't hold it against this church. The normal pastor is far more competent and does a great job. So last time, uh, which wasn't all that long ago, um, the, the points which I sort of hit on, which perhaps you um, pick up upon as we read through those verses that we just went through, um, the points were fivefold. So firstly, 
the non-Christian person doesn't accept or understand godly things because he slash she doesn't have the spirit of God, doesn't have what I call the required software to do so. Secondly, we confronted a, uh, a fairly major uh, social faux pas, which is to make judgments in accordance with godliness. You might remember I, I used the word exhort far too many times, and I said that I was exhorting you actually to be a judgmental people, but to judge in accordance with godliness. Thirdly, the Christian, indeed no one, is subject to the judgments of the world. Only judgments made in accordance with godliness ought to be adhered to. Fourthly, God's mind, his ways, are far and above any man's. There is no one who can give him counsel or instruct him in a certain way. How would one propose to instruct a, a thing, a God who has all knowledge? And fifthly, we have the mind of Christ. And so, inasmuch as we utilize the mind of Christ, we make right judgments. When you make, right ju- when you make judgments in accordance with that which is right, then necessarily you will make right judgments. Well, let's move into the, the text of today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I should mention also just by uh, last point in my introduction that you're sort of going to get a, an exegesis through verses 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're also going to get a little mini sermonette uh, through part of Ephesians within the body of the sermon. So you can consider it a two-for-one deal perhaps. But verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And as I've said already, but I want to reinforce, Paul spends the first two chapters, um, which albeit is not that, that long, but Paul spends the first two chapters of this letter laying that foundation of the world's ways, the world's wisdom, and God's ways, and God's wisdom, and imagine reading that. And this Corinthian church, they, they thought they were advanced. They thought they were a spiritual people. They had all of these, these gifts, uh, supposedly, of, of the spirit which they were operating in. They thought they, they had it. And yet Paul, with all of that in their uh, perhaps church culture, and with the first two uh, chapters of this book in mind, Paul well, smacks them down, really, in this first verse. But I, brothers, or Adelphoi, meaning uh, brothers and sisters in the faith, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Imagine having that opinion of yourself that you, you were spiritually singing and dancing, as it were. You, you had it going on. And then Paul laying this foundation. And then imagine being the subject that this letter was written to and hearing that said or reading that said of you. But I couldn't address you as spiritual people. I've just told you about how the world's ways are over here, God's ways are over here. I can't address you as God's way, in God's ways. I had to address you as a worldly people, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Imagine what that would feel like. 
Now to sort of buffet that comment, Paul doesn't say that the Corinthians are not Christian. He collectively assumes the best of them. He, as I said, he addresses them as Adelphoi, as brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, and indeed, the, the whole of the letter is written to the saints who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. But he does speak very poorly of their maturity in Christ. Couldn't address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he assumes the best of them, addressing them as a, as a godly, well, as people of God. But it's clear that there are at least some non-Christians within the Corinthian congregation. If, if you feel like it, uh, flip over to chapter 5, verse 5, um, where in speaking of the man who, quote, has his father's wife, Paul says to, and here it is, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this man who is uh, within the, the Corinthian church uh, has an, an ongoing relationship with his father's wife um, and it would take some further study and, and I'm sure we'll get there when we get to chapter 5 as to whether that was like his stepmom or his biological mum. But in any case, this is an okie-dokie kind of relationship and something which Paul goes on to say, even in the, the, the secular Corinthian culture, is not something which is uh, celebrated. And yet it, this kind of relationship was within the Corinthian church. So once again, the Corinthians have this high inflated opinion of themselves, and yet within their church... There is a type of sin which isn't even tolerated in the ungodly culture around them, which was particularly ungodly. So this man appears to have had his father's wife uh, in an ongoing fashion. It wasn't just some vulgar and sinful one-night stand, but this man and this woman were living in a lifestyle of sin. And hence, we can uh, very clearly say that this person was not a Christian. To be clear, Christians stumble into sin as they continue to battle the flesh. Wretched man that I am, says Paul in Romans 7, verse 24. Christians will repent of that, ask the Lord's forgiveness, and move on in sanctification. So Christians stumble into sin, whereas non-Christians live in a lifestyle of sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, uh, Jesus says in John 8, 34. Now, practices refers to an ongoing lifestyle. The Greek word is the same as the English word, really. It's a present tense verb, meaning something that one is presently doing. And so the gentleman referred to in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, uh, was in this latter category. And hence, Paul commands the Corinthians to deliver him to Satan, that he might presently be ashamed, but ultimately, that that shame would lead to godly repentance, which in the end leads to, to joy, to salvation, to peace with God. You might see 2 Corinthians 7, 10 for that. That he may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
So coming back, Paul addresses the Corinthians. Uh, he assumes the best of them. Uh, but nonetheless, there are non-Christians within the congregation. And I want you to imagine that if Scott stood up next Sunday and said to you guys, brothers and sisters, I can't address you today as a spiritual people, but rather I'm addressing you as those who are led by the flesh, as those who are very immature in Christ. This is a more personal uh, application of what I challenged you with at the, the start. How would that feel? What action would you take if you guys are like me? And I'm not uh, not trying to to bolster Scott unduly, uh, but if you're like me, you uh, you look up to his uh, his spiritual maturity. So, how would it feel to have someone who you respect like that say something like that to you? I can't speak to you as a spiritual people, but rather as those who are immature in Christ. And I realize this is a, a hypothetical. Uh, situation. We believe in a, a closed canon of scripture, that there's no ongoing scripture being written today. But if someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did write a letter about this church, what would they say? We have what Paul wrote about the Corinthian church in front of us. But if Paul, uh, sorry, if someone was to write a, a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this church, what would they say? And again, even more personally, if they were to write a letter to you, what would this letter say? And what action would you take as a result of that letter, be it good or bad? Perhaps some of it would be uh, as the letters in uh, the beginning chapters of Revelation. Perhaps some of it would be positive. What would you do about that? But what would you do about the aspects of your life or this church life uh, which are perhaps sinful? What would you do about that? So the question really is, what does God think about this church? What does God think about your spiritual maturity? If there are weaknesses or even sin, what will you do about it? So by calling the Corinthians the people of the flesh, uh, Paul is saying that they are not led by the spirit as they ought to be, but by the flesh that remains following their conversion. Once again, he addresses them as brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, but nonetheless, they are infants in Christ, not having uh, appropriately progressed in their Christian walk as they ought to have. So just a couple of things to consider in dot point form from, uh, from those, that first verse. Paul assumes the best of those who name the name of Christ. He addresses them as brothers and sisters in the faith. And I would say, unless there is damnable heresy in a person's doctrine or a pattern of ongoing sin, we ought to assume those who name Christ's name are Christian also. And lastly, just that question in application again. If someone under the inspiration of God were to write a letter to you, what would it say? What action would you take? So verses 2 and 3. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So Paul mentions milk and solid food, and this is potentially not a reference to, to different doctrines 
as if Paul taught uh, the, the immature people doctrines A, B, and C, and then he went on to teach the mature, yes, the mature people doctrines D, E, and F. It's not necessarily a reference to different doctrines, but the fact that he was only able to teach these people uh, surface-level teaching. They weren't ready for the real depth, for the real background um, of what he would have liked to have taught uh, to a mature people. And what, again, in application, what is appropriate for you in your Christian walk? Is it milk? Or are you spiritually mature enough to ingest solid food? And I want to say, preachers sometimes ask questions like this, and it comes across in a, a negative way, as if they're always trying to beat down the hearers. Uh, that's not my intention. I hope uh, that you are those who are, are feasting on, on solid food, on meat, as it were. Um, but I think, nonetheless, it's good to challenge ourselves uh, with these kind of questions. So the Corinthian church was established in around about 50 AD, and Paul wrote this letter in around about 55 AD, so five years later. I'm sure there's some disagreement among scholars on those exact dates, but roughly 50 and 55 AD. And I know it's not a, a direct equivalent. It's not Paul's exact point. Excuse me. But can you imagine being five and still only drinking milk? With all that's positive that's said about uh, uh, breast milk and mother's milk and all these uh, things, if you were five and still only drinking milk, that's probably not a, uh, an appropriate place to be in. That probably represents uh, some immaturity, uh, perhaps either in you or perhaps in, uh, in your parents. But in this case, we're making the example that if you were five and still only on milk, that's probably not a great thing. And here, the, here Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, here you are as, as five-year-olds. I, I established this church five years ago, but I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. What immaturity. When Tracy and I were saved, and no doubt that the same with you all, we needed milk. It's good to start with milk. If you feed a, a, a baby a, a big old steak, it's not going to work out very well for you. But we needed milk uh, from that get-go. But if I compare, and this is all praise to God, this is not me uh, inflated in my own opinion of myself, but if I compare where we're at now compared with where we were at then, there's been a lot of change. Again, praise be to God. Yes, we were genuinely saved uh, when we were saved at that early point, but there's been progression since then. And I hope and pray uh, that, yes, we are those who can ingest solid food. By way of anecdotal example, um, I think that we can represent uh, growth in maturity in a couple or maybe more than a couple of ways. Uh, progression in maybe doctrinal thinking or depth of doctrine, as, as Paul talks about here with his milk and solid food, uh, and also the, the putting to death of sin in our lives. I remember reasonably vividly uh, driving along in a tractor one day in, in the farm job that I was working at the time, uh, and I was madly speaking out in what I would have referred to as tongues, just driving along in my secular job, 
speaking in tongues as I was driving along. And if I, I don't know what your opinions on these things are, but if I consider what I now think of that theologically compared to then, there's been a lot of progression. Um, And I remember also at one point sitting in, it was the first place that Tracy and I lived in once we were married. And, And I remember saying that line, and how many times have you heard this, that you can't have true love of God unless you have a choice. How many times have you heard that kind of line from somebody who, who supports uh, free will as opposed to predestination? You know, referring to those nasty predestinarians, which uh, of course is what I would happily label myself as now. You, you can't possibly love God unless you have a choice in the matter. Of course, that's a a bit of a straw man example and there's more that we could do to dissect uh, that false dichotomy. But you see that there's been a progression in the theology of of even myself. And to the other aspect, the putting to death of sin, there are things which, and of course, I know more examples about myself than others. That's why I'm speaking about me, but it hopefully illustrates the point here. I know that I used to be far more prideful and far more quick to anger because of that pride. And praise be to God in his growing of myself in maturity. That's now less so. It's not a complete non-issue, but it's something which he has seen fit to sanctify in me. So when we were first saved, we required milk. We were genuinely saved. But praise be to God, there's been a progression since then. And I hope the same is true in you. With regards to maturity, we live in an age of constant distraction. All of us, uh, in one way or another, have jobs, have things that we occupy our time with. And some of these are simply hard to turn off from at the end of the day. Or perhaps we work extended hours and there's, there's little time for other things. We have various activities which we uh, put our time toward, sporting things, hobbies, various celebrations, seminars, whatever it might be. We are, as a culture, uh, a culture that loves travel. We're often engaged in social media, the internet. There's a proliferation of, of information and things that we can do at our fingertips. Now, those of you who know me well, which is most of you, will know that I think predominantly, if not wholly, these things are good. But if we become distracted by them and don't consciously use them well, don't consciously use them well, we run the risk of becoming spiritually distracted, stunting our growth, stunting that spiritual maturity. Rather, I would uh, exhort you to use these things to God's glory and the extension of his kingdom. Because I think all of those things, as I say, are predominantly, if not wholly good, but we need to be conscious in the way that we use them so that they're used to God's glory and to uh, improve our spiritual maturity as as opposed to detract from it. So moving on to our our sermonette through uh, Ephesians 4. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. 11 to 16. So part of what Joel read earlier. So Ephesians 4, verse 11. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I'm not going to go as into depth into all of those verses as I usually would in the rest of the sermon, so rest assured you won't be here until 1 o'clock. Um, but verses one, sorry, 11 to 13 uh, relate to how we become mature, and verses 14 to 16 describe what that maturity looks like. Uh, Paul starts it with, so that... Here's the foundation, and we we do this so that X, Y, and Z. And the reason I I thought to go through this is because, um, as you can see, the the verses from 1 Corinthians uh, show us what immaturity looks like. And I thought, well, we should look at what maturity, therefore, looks like and how we become mature. So Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Historically, presently, and on into the future, God has and will give the church various people with various different talents and roles in order to build up his body in order to make his body mature. As 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 says, Now there are very varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And here's the key bit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There are various people with various talents, various gifts, and they are all to be used for the common good of the church. And so we should honour and learn from the various gifts and roles that God has placed within the church. Verse 13, I told you I'd move more quickly than usual. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God has given the aforementioned roles until we all attain to the things in this verse. And uh, I'm sure one of you somewhere has the John MacArthur Study Bible, so you may be able to read along here. Uh, John MacArthur says on on faith, unity, uh, on what that is, that faith here refers to the body of revealed truth that constitutes Christian teaching, particularly featuring the complete content of the gospel. And here we go. Oneness and harmony among believers is possible only when it is built on the foundation 
of sound doctrine. So that was sort of the, the preface that I started the message with, that uh, true Christian unity is centred upon God's word. And if you believe that God's word is simply black and white on a page, or if you believe that doctrine is lifeless or is something man-made, once again, true doctrine, then you will miss that. But oneness and harmony among believers is possible only when it is built on the foundation of sound doctrine. And so my point, and indeed the title of the sermon, is spiritual maturity equals God's body centered around God's word. The faith, as it says in this verse, is not an obscure and unidentifiable concept. It's not subjective or different for each person. The faith is faith in a real God with real facts about that real God, which, praise be to him, he has chosen to reveal to his people in his word that they might reach the unity of faith, that they might become a mature people. So when we are centred around this faith, we are spiritually mature. And Paul mentions in that uh, verse 13 of Ephesians 4 something which I just love uh, because it's, uh, I guess, presuppositional in nature and I, you know I love presuppositionalism. Uh, it says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It sets up Christ as the standard of maturity. If you want to know what absolutely perfect Christian maturity looks like, look to Jesus. That is your example. He is your example. So verses 14 to 16, what does maturity look like? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We become mature so that we are solid in the faith, not easily deceived or led astray by what every other person says. When I, when I was in the process, or well, sorry, I should say, when God was in the process of reforming me, uh, be that uh, in the terms of uh, becoming a Reformed Baptist or just reforming my faith in general, uh, one of the things that stuck out to me about those who might be termed uh, conservative theologically or, or you know, Reformed Baptist or Reformed Presbyterians, whatever you might uh, term it, one of the things that stood out to me was these gentlemen would make a statement and they would justify it by scripture. The, uh, the groups that I had been a part of before, not everybody, but there was a lot more, I feel that God is saying X, Y, and Z, or I feel that God is doing this over here. And we, we can have a debate all day about whether that's good, bad, or the other thing. But the, the thing that stuck out to me about these preachers was that they would make a statement and justify it in God's word. And that, to me, uh, is, is mature, is spiritually mature. If you can know what is in God's word, if you can justify your theology in God's word, you won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You won't be doing this thing over here because God now feels that we should be doing that or that thing over there because, no, we've now changed our mind. You know what's in God's word and you therefore go and do that or don't do that in accordance with what's in the book. 
We need to be a people centred around the word, around Jesus. That will cause us not easily to be led down the garden path, as it were. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So mature believers are not easily deceived because they are solid in the faith. And mature believers speak the truth in love to one another. Sometimes love is easy to hear, and sometimes love hurts to hear. But, and this is just a, such a difficult concept to wrap our minds around, but it's so solidly scriptural that I would beg you to listen. Uh, the mature believer loves correction. The mature believer loves correction because it helps them to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ or to be mature. So ask yourself, do you love correction? Do you love it when somebody tells you that, uh, in, in whatever way they might go about it, but do you love it when somebody corrects you, says, you know, brother, sister, in this particular area, I think you've gone wrong, whether it's that you are in an area of sin or whether it's an area of doctrine which perhaps you could improve. Do you love it when somebody comes and corrects you? Because mature believers love correction. Proverbs 12 verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid, it says. And discipline and and correction are not always the same thing. But I would say if you don't love correction, what chance have you got of loving discipline? I would say that's a more, uh, more exaggerated form. So whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And we love correction, we love discipline because it helps us to be more Christ-like. It helps us to increase in our spiritual maturity. We speak the truth in love so that we grow up, we mature in every way, in Christ-likeness, once again, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And last verse in the sermonette, verse 16, from whom the body, sorry, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When the various folks with the various gifts in the church are centred around Christ when we're mature, the body of Christ then creates a self-perpetuating build-up in love. It creates a snowball effect. And I sure want to be a part of a body like that. So, coming back to our central text, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, moving into verses 3 and 4. It says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So we've established the fact A mature Christian is one who is centred upon God's word and acts out of this devotion. The opposite, an immature Christian, is one who is not centred upon God's word. And perhaps this is because they're young in the faith, perhaps they're complacent in their devotion, perhaps they're not well guided by the elders of the church they're a part of, 
Not that that's exclusively the elder's fault, but uh, it is nonetheless a, an obligation of the elder to be guiding those under their care. Or perhaps they're participating too much in worldly culture as opposed to Christ's culture. But inevitably this results in sin or at least misguided behaviour. And that's what has occurred in Corinth. Paul says, while there is jealousy and strife among you, and I'm throwing this in there purely because I found it interesting, the word for jealousy or for jealous is zealous. I just find it kind of interesting when you can see the really easy transition from Greek to English. So zealous, jealous, hopefully you can see it. I actually don't have anything more about that word apart from I found that interesting. So while there is jealousy and strife among you, uh, synonyms for strife would be strife, debate, contention, variance. The Corinthians had formed factions around certain teachers. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Or earlier in uh, chapter 1 or 2, I can't remember, uh, there's another group that say, I follow Christ. And of course, they're the very spiritual ones because they follow Christ. But it is God who gives the growth in verse 6. And that ought to be the focus. He ought to be our focus. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter, but God ought to be our focus. Individual teachers are the, may well be the means that God uses to bring maturity, but they ought not to be our focus, or we risk becoming factioned also. And this perhaps is something which uh, cuts a bit deeper. Uh, we have very similar potential with denominations, with creedal statements, with confessions, etc. Is the focus the denomination, the creed or the confession? Or is it the God of that denomination, creed or confession? Now, personally, do you adhere to a denomination of creed or confession because it best sums up, it best centres on God's word, which I would say is mature? Or do you adhere to a, a denomination, creed or confession because it's just what you've always done and you adhere to it no matter what? And what would you do if there were a point in that denomination, creed or confession that were not in line with Scripture? What would your action be as a result of that? Now, assuming the denomination, creed, or confession is centered upon God's word, this is the very maturity we are talking about seeking. So I, I personally am very happy to be labeled as a, a 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith following Reformed Baptist. I have no problem with people calling me that. I have no problem with people calling me a, a predestinarian or any of the other uh, isms and schisms you might talk about that actually apply to me. <laughs> I have no problem with being labelled as those because I believe that those things sum up well what is in Scripture. It would be backwards if I followed those things and focused on them irrespective of what's in Scripture. It becomes a problem if the confession or, or the creed or, or the denomination becomes the focus and not the Bible that that confession, creed, or whatever it is, is hopefully centred on. Now, this church, as, as you well know, that the same thing really applies. Uh, this church is called a Reformed Baptist church. Now, the Reformers 
sought to center everything on the Bible. And we are not following in their stead if we become faction to this or that denomination, creed or confession at the expense of biblical devotion. Once again, the, the Bible and the God of that Bible is our focus and not the, the other means which he has used to improve our devotion. So the point, spiritual maturity equals the antidote to a lack of sanctification. Relating to the, uh, the substance of that verse. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? And the next message, Paul goes on to address this whole, uh, this faction bit a bit more, so we'll go on to it more then. But God gives his people resources as means of drawing them to him, the focus. And sometimes Christians, because they don't do what I've just said, because they don't use uh, creeds, confessions, denominations, preachers, teachers, whatever, uh, as a means of uh, helping them focus on the Bible, instead they focus on those other things. Other Christians have decided, right, I'm going to have none of this. I'm never going to look at a creed or a confession or a denomination. I'm never going to listen to a preacher or a teacher. It's just going to be me and my Bible under a tree over here, a nice solo island Christian all by myself. That also is immaturity. Because the, the Christian who is mature recognizes that God uses means, preachers, teachers, creeds, confessions, to accomplish the end of spiritual maturity. That God, as we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, has given various people with various gifts in order for the common good of the church to build itself up in love. And I love uh, what Paul says later on in chapter 3, in verses 21 and 23. He says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. God gives us tools to increase our maturity. The point, spiritual maturity equals a believer who knows means are to focus us on God, not to be the focus. To conclude, the, uh, the points just giving them to you one after the other largely are spiritual maturity equals God's body centered upon God's word. Spiritual maturity equals the antidote to a lack of sanctification. Or you might say that the antidote to, uh, to jealousy, strife, factions and spiritual maturity in general is to be a people centered upon God's word who live out of that devotion. And thirdly, spiritual maturity equals a believer who knows means are to focus us on God, not to be the focus. There's a final thought, and it's only just a couple of lines and then we'll pray. This, uh, these first four verses of uh, chapter 3 are a rebuke, essentially, to the Corinthian church. And one will either receive such a rebuke positively, repenting and subsequently gaining in wisdom and maturity, or one will receive such a rebuke negatively, 
pridefully justifying oneself, digging in their heels and continuing on in sin. So how do you react when you're rebuked? Do you weigh up what is said by your rebuker in light of Scripture? Do you allow iron to sharpen iron so that you and perhaps your rebuker also uh, would be sharper and more useful tools in the hands of your maker? As I said earlier in the message, uh, Christians, mature Christians, love being corrected, love even being disciplined uh, by God in order that they would be sharper tools, more effective, more mature uh, in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are, I hope, a people who love your word. Uh, we exist in a, at least in our Christian culture, in a people who love your word, uh, who often preach messages about the importance of your word. Uh, and that, in large part, has been what this message has been about, the importance of your word and the fact that when we are centered upon that word, we will be spiritually mature. But may the fact that some of this message is familiar to us not detract um, but from your Holy Spirit using it, I pray. And instead, even if it's one or two things, I pray that uh, these things would stick with us and that they would bear much fruit. Thank you, Lord, that when we're centered upon your word, this will be the antidote to any lack of sanctification. The more we center ourselves upon your word and the more we do what is in your word, the less we will sin and form a jealousy and strife and factions. And Lord, with this said, um, may we as a church um, in Cooma and in this region, in Australia, in the world, may we as a church love the various tools you have given us and may you use them well to increase our devotion, to increase our maturity. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.